You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. All right, friends. Imagine this weekend you're getting together with a few friends to play soccer. You've got a pretty decent-sized group, and so you've got to find a park where you go and play. When you get there, you mark out the boundary lines of your field. You put goals on either end to make sure people know this is where the field starts, this is where it ends. You split up teams, and then you start to play. And everything goes really smoothly at first. Everyone's on the same page about how to play soccer. You don't use your hands, you don't go off sides, etc. But then you have that one friend, and you all have this one friend. We all have this one friend who says, you know what? I'm going to play soccer my way. I don't really like using my feet. I'm going to pick the ball up. I'm going to run around with the ball in my hand, and I'm going to throw it into the goal. I'm not going to kick it into the goal. I'm going to throw it into the goal because that's what I do best. They change the whole game, and immediately you know that your friends, everyone there playing, would stop and be really confused about what was happening. Like, what is going on here? And you would probably have to take this person aside and start talking to them. You'd probably have to say, hey, man, like, whatever sport you're playing looks like a blast. You seem to be having a lot of fun, right? But when we all got together, we said we were going to play soccer. And there are certain things that soccer is and certain things that soccer isn't. And if we're going to play together, we have to know what soccer is and what soccer isn't. Sometimes, in our spiritual lives, we can get confused as to what kind of sport we're playing. What kind of faith are we actually believing in? Because many of us have been handed Christianity, by a culture, by our parents, by our neighbors. Whether you've gone to church or not, you've probably spent time around people who are Christians and who articulate that Christianity in a certain way. Maybe for you it was Catholics. You went to Catholic school or Catholic church growing up. Maybe it was Lutherans. Maybe it was Methodists, Baptists, Mennonites, Nazarenes, right? There's all sorts of different denominations. Maybe it was weird Presbyterians like us here, right, that you grew up around. Regardless of who it was, these different groups can often make it confusing for us to try to navigate what it means to be Christian. It can make us start to ask, like, wait, are we all, are we all playing soccer? What, what is soccer? What does it mean, really, to be Christian? And if that's true within Christianity, that's also true within the whole scope of our world, right? There's other faiths. Judaism and Islam, Buddhism and Hinduism, Taoism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, Rastafarianism, there's all sorts of different faiths that you can follow in our world. And so how is Christianity different from those? How is this soccer and maybe that basketball? Or maybe they're not, maybe they're the same. How do we know what's true about Christianity, what it means to be Christian? And these are really good questions, especially after the last few weeks for us, because we've been spending a lot of time looking at the core teachings of Christianity, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us. So now, what's the core of the whole faith? What does it mean to say, I follow Jesus? And that's why we're doing this series. We're calling it Christianity Uncomplicated. It's a way of looking at this statement, this ancient statement we just read together called the Apostles' Creed. It dates all the way back to the third century and to some of the earliest beliefs of the church. And it's the statement that every Christian around the world would say, this, this is what I believe. There's three things we're going to do each week as we go through this statement together. First thing we're going to do is what we already did, read the creed aloud together. My hope is by the end of 11 weeks of reading this, we have it start to build into our lives in some way. We remember these statements and understand them a little better. 
And then each week, the second thing we'll do is examine one particular part of the creed, one statement per week. And then finally, we'll connect that statement to a bit of scripture. That's an important thing about this creed. It is connected back to this amazing library of texts, and this amazing library of texts is connected to the person of Jesus. So the creed is a way for us to connect to scripture and therefore connect to Jesus. It's not some religious thing we do. It's a way to point us back to Christ. So we're going to read scripture together to do that. And personally, I'm really excited for this series because I think it's going to speak to all of us, regardless of where we are on our spiritual journeys. It's going to speak to many different people in this room. For instance, you might be someone who's just kind of dipping your toe in the water of Christianity. Somebody who's just exploring, right, and seeing what this really looks like. This is a great way to explore because Christianity often has a lot of noise heaped on top of it. It's nice to sift through the noise and get at the core. You might also be someone who was raised in the church or who's been around church spaces and kind of has a tough time with those weird Christian people, right? They've done things, they've said things, there's been unfortunate circumstances. Maybe you've deconstructed your faith or you ask a lot of questions about faith. We want you to know that this is a great place to do that. And also, this is a great way to sift through those questions. And from the deconstructors and skeptics that I spend time with and know, some of them in this room, in this community, in my experience in conversation, it's not usually the core of Christianity that you've deconstructed from, that we deconstruct from. It's usually the corruptions of that core that make us leave the church, that make us not want to be a part of the church. Things like consumerism or unhealthy institutions, political idolatry woven together with religion, or spiritual or emotional abuse in the church. And those things are terrible. And I would say that those things are actually anti-church. Those are the opposite of what Christianity is supposed to be. And so my hope is, if you're a deconstructor or skeptic in the room, you're getting some time to look at the core. A lot of those extra things can be like boulders in the way. Our hope is that this series moves those boulders out of the way as Jesus moves a stone out of the way on Resurrection Sunday so that you can see clearly what Christianity is. But I also think that this series is going to speak to you if you've been following Jesus for a long time for months or years or decades. Because when we do religious things over and over, it can sometimes be easy to lose sight of the core. We can start to think that it's just about going to church or just about giving our money or just about reading our Bible or the like. And this statement will help us winnow things down to get back to the center of the faith. So my hope is that this speaks to all of you in the room, regardless of where you are on a spiritual journey. So it's a long introduction, but it's a way to start off our series together. Uh, we're going to jump into the scriptures uh, here, looking at the first statement of the creed, which is, I believe in. So first statement, we're just going to look at three little words in the creed and some words that Paul says uh, connected to that statement. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me to the book of Ephesians. Uh, it's in the New Testament, if you're flipping there. It's okay to go to the table of contents if you need to find Ephesians. That's okay to do. Uh, we're going to start in chapter 3. So that's the big number 3 under Ephesians, and then Verse 7, that's a little number 7. Uh, we're going to have the words behind me on the screen as well, if you'd like to follow along there. Of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I believe in. I believe in. That's the start of this Apostles' Creed. And it actually is a statement that flows into every other statement. Everything that we say as Christians starts with, I believe in. And at first, when we hear that statement, as people who like to be scientific and reason-based and rational, it can feel kind of up in the air. Belief feels not really tangible, not really tactile, not something we can hold on to, right? But I actually think that's a bit of an unfairness to the concept of belief. Belief, if you really dig into it, is actually something that everyone does at one level or another. Every person in our world says, I believe in something. And what they believe in changes everything they do. In other words, everyone has a creed. Everyone has a creed. Think about it in our world today, some creeds that exist. Black Lives Matter, that is a creed. That is a statement of truth about what it means to be human and who is human and how we treat humans. And it leads people to live a certain way to be a socially active person, to be a politically active person. It leads to certain conclusions when you use that creed. My body, my choice. That's a creed. It's a statement about what my body is, how I have control over it, and it leads me to certain conclusions. Make America great again. That is a creed. It articulates a certain vision of America and wants to bring that vision back, and it leads to action. It leads to behaviors. YOLO. You only live once. That is a creed, you guys. It sounds silly, but that is a creed. It's a certain statement about the futility of life and how it goes away, and it leads to actions, oftentimes dumb actions, but actions, right? And so creeds are not just religious things. Creeds are statements of truth that outline an understanding of the world and then lead to certain actions. Creeds are statements of truth that outline an understanding of the world and lead to certain actions. So, for all of us in this room, the question is not, well, do I have a creed? The question is, what is my creed? What do I believe in? What are the core essentials that guide my life? And how do they work their way out in how I treat myself and how I treat my neighbors and how I interact with the world? When this Apostles' Creed was developed, it was born out of radical experiences. Hundreds, thousands of men and women who interacted with the resurrected Jesus. They listened to him, they learned from him, and this statement was born out of that learning. It was born out of all of the things that Jesus embodied in his life. And so these three little words, I believe in, shaped people. They changed everything about their life. People who were headed one direction, headed another direction. And in the early church, they often got murdered for it. I believe in guided everything they did. It guided their life and their death. These are powerful words. I believe in starts revolutions all over our world. So we should ask ourselves, what does it mean for me as a Christian to say, I believe in? What does the creed do for us? I think there's three things that we see in this passage in Paul and that also we see in the creed itself. The creed points, the creed clarifies, and the creed distinguishes. The creed points, clarifies, and distinguishes. We're going to unpack each of these first. And I'm going to start, actually, uh, by telling you about a website 
It's called pointerpointer.com. Anybody heard of pointerpointer.com? Yeah. Oh, it made the rounds on the internet a little while ago. It's really funny. So if you go to the website, you can move your cursor anywhere on the screen. And after a few seconds, it will generate a picture of anyone, a random stranger, pointing to your cursor. I've got a couple examples. Random pictures. This dude, right in the middle of the screen. He's like, there's the, there's the pointer. Next one. Yep, she's like, hey, pointer's up there. Next one. This dude, right, like pointing right at the pointer, right? If you want to waste like five, ten minutes, this is a fun way to waste. It's like really a waste of time, but it's pretty funny. The creed is a pointer. The creed in itself has no power. They are just words put together but they are designed to point beyond themselves to a reality, a reality that forms everything we do. When we recite these creeds, it's not like a magical spell that makes us Christian. We recite these creeds because we are pointing ourselves towards a reality of what Jesus has done in the world and how that shapes us. And that reality is what Paul is talking about in verse 7 here. He mentions that he is a servant for the gospel. He actually says this gospel. Whenever you say this thing, you're referring to one specific thing, right? If I say this chair, I'm saying this chair and not that chair. He's saying this gospel. So what's the gospel he's talking about? It helps to unpack the word a little bit. In Greek, the, the word for gospel is euangelion. And in Hebrew, the connected word is beser or besora. And those words literally just mean good news or good announcement. And it's actually a word that's pretty rich in the library of scriptures. So in the Hebrew text, the Old Testament, beser and besora always referred to a royal announcement, an announcement that was related to the kingdom. So if a new king that was a good and uh, worthy king worth celebrating assumed the throne, then someone would proclaim the beser or besorah, the good news of that king. If a, a terrible, oppressive empire was overthrown, people would proclaim the beser or the besorah, the good news of that empire being overthrown. This word is always a marker that evil powers, like oppression, exploitation, abuse, have been overthrown, and that there is now peace. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. The problem is, in the Hebrew scriptures, every time it's used, well, that good news eventually becomes bad news. It never lasted, because the good kings eventually became bad kings. The oppressed, who assumed power, eventually became the oppressors. And when you think about it, this is actually the tale of world history. On a macro level, it's a history of humans taking a good thing and turning it into a bad thing, taking good circumstances and turning them bad. That's what the Bible is getting at. And it does that through one nation, telling the story of Israel. But Israel is a stand-in for all of us. It's a stand-in for all societies. You can even see this on a micro scale in the last little stretch in our time here in the U.S. A little over a decade ago, there was some good news that was proclaimed all around the U.S. It was the good news of social media. You can go and read articles. This is a thing. Go back, read articles from 10, 15 years ago. People were proclaiming that social media was a radically unifying force, a way that people across all cultures and across all differences could come together to overthrow or to undermine oppressive regimes or empires. And the peak of this was in 2011. It actually did happen a little bit. You guys might remember the Arab Spring that happened in 2011. It was the bringing together of a variety of different oppressed classes in the Middle East to overthrow an oppressive regime there. There was another movement, Occupy Wall Street. You might remember this one. The whole movement was started on social media as a way to help critique some of the really ugly uh, 
dynamics that existed out of the American economic system. It was a way to bring people together. It was a democratizing of our world. It was good news. No longer do all of these oppressive powers have rule over us. We can come together as people now via social media. Is that how social media is now? So what happened? Well, eventually, the people who invented social media, Facebook and Twitter and the like, found out that well, the way that they can make more money and the way that they can benefit their companies is by giving us certain content that will make us react in certain ways. The goal of social media shifted from just presenting people and connecting people to now presenting a certain perspective that will produce the greatest reaction in you. You can watch The Social Dilemma to see how this works. There's algorithms that are designed to produce the greatest reaction. And what do you think is often the greatest reaction? Hatred, anger, self-justification, and the belittlement of my enemies. And so after just a few years, this good news, this unifying force of social media is tearing us apart. It is radically ripping our country to shreds, and we're just participating in it. This is what humans do, friends. The human condition takes good things and turns them into bad things. That's what the Bible means when it says sin, when it talks about sin. Sin is sometimes a fancy religious word that can be intimidating. It just means that humans take things that are supposed to be good and turn them bad because there's some sort of nature to us that does it. But the biblical story doesn't end there. The gospel doesn't end there. Paul's talking about the continuation of this story. In the prophet Isaiah, he uses the word gospel, beser or besorah in Hebrew. And he talks about the ultimate or final good news. He says that all these humans, they failed to bring good, lasting life to everything. But God is going to show up and do it. God will come to heal and restore the broken world. Oppression will cease when he comes. Sin will be forgiven when he comes. Healing will come to relationships and to the planet when he comes. God will arrive to bring all of that. And then, just a few hundred years later, after Isaiah wrote those words, a guy named Jesus shows up on the scene. You might be familiar with Jesus. He proclaimed that he himself was the good news, the euangelion. He said that when we receive him in our lives and when we embody his way to the world, redemption and restoration come. Oppression ceases. All of our divisiveness gets healed. That's the gospel that Paul is talking about. That's the gospel he's pointing to. He's pointing beyond himself. When we say, I believe in, that's what we're talking about as Christians. We're saying that all of these other human forces that have tried to bring healing are ultimately going to fail us, even in the short term and in the long term. And we need something beyond ourselves and that Jesus is that something. Jesus is the one that the creed points to. And that means the creed is not a way to contain God. Sometimes we can think that belief means I've contained God or located him within a box. That's not what the creed is doing. The creed is actually saying God has revealed himself to us and this is what it looks like. It's pointing beyond itself always. So that's the first thing that the creed does for us. It points. There's a second thing that the creed does. It clarifies. This is connected to verse 9 in the Ephesians passage we read together. But I'm interested first. Uh, think in your mind, when I say the word God, think really quickly, what's the first image that comes to your head? You don't have to say it out loud. Just think really quickly, what's the first image? Maybe it's a teacher, maybe it's a judge, maybe it's this impersonal or ambiguous force, maybe it's a powerful bearded man with lightning bolts sitting up on clouds, right? 
Maybe nothing comes to mind at all. Maybe you're not really sure what it looks like to think of God. All over the world and throughout history, humans have asked this question. Who is God? What is God? How do we know that God? And it's led to a variety of different conclusions. All over the world, there are different faiths who say that God is like this or God is this. And we start to encounter a problem when we see all of the diversity here. We start to realize that we, as humans, are finite beings. We are characters in a story, unable to know fully who the author is. We're unable to know fully what the next page looks like or what the conclusion of the story looks like because well, we're in the story and the author's outside of it. But what if the author actually wrote themselves into the story? What if the author said, well, this is what I'm like. I will write myself in as a character. If that happens, then the author would be able to tell us quite clearly who he is or she is or it is. That's what Christians say has happened in the person of Jesus. When we say, I believe in, we're making a statement that God has made himself clear and known to us in the person of Jesus. No longer is there this great mystery about who God is. No longer is there diversity about who God is. This is it. Jesus showed up and said, if you want to know who God is, it's me. And that's a huge deal, you guys. That's what Paul is talking about here when he says the mystery of God has been revealed. The mystery of God throughout all of history is no longer a mystery. It's been revealed in Jesus. And practically in our lives, that makes a huge difference because many times when we go through especially difficult or hard things, we start to question who God is. We start to wonder if God is really at work, what his character is really like, or her character or its character is like. I can tell you that I've done that in my life. I've questioned God. When my dad died from cancer, I wondered if God really loved me or him. When friends from high school killed themselves, I wondered, does God really care about us? When folks I knew had miscarriages, I wondered if God is even there at all. When war and violence ravage our world or oppression leaks through in our streets, I wonder, what is God doing? We live in a world right now where God often seems like a mystery to us. But the creed helps give us clarity in the middle of that mystery. The Christian creed, which again points to the story and points to Jesus, says that it's no longer mysterious what God is doing. We know because of what Jesus has done and said. Jesus is God's definitive proclamation in the world, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means to love. This is what it means to do everything that we do. This is what it means to have eternal life. Jesus is the proclamation of God in the middle of a mysterious world. And so if you're in this room and you've lived your life wondering who God is, whether God actually exists, what that really means for you at all, the creed is hope for clarity. Jesus is the clarity. That's the second thing that we learn about the creed here in this passage and in the statement itself. I believe in states that this gives us clarity. Jesus has arrived. There's a third thing that the creed does. The creed distinguishes. This is connected to verse 10, what Paul says here. Paul mentions that this gospel produces a new sort of community, a new group of people called the church. 
And that church makes the wisdom of God known to the world in all of its rich variety. That's kind of the poetic language that Paul uses. Meaning that when we understand this gospel, when we know it, when we allow it to shape our lives, it actually makes a difference in our lives. It actually changes our behavior. It actually distinguishes us from other people because now we have a different force driving us. We are different sorts of people. So when we say, I believe in, we're not just making intellectual assertions. We're not just saying, oh yeah, like I believe this idea. When we say, I believe in, it means that it makes a difference in our lives. It means that it changes us. It means that it distinguishes us as people. To believe anything is to act on that belief. To believe anything is to act on that belief. If you don't act on your beliefs, then you don't believe them. You don't trust them. So, if the church really believes, if we mean what we say when we say, I believe in, then it's going to embody the gospel message. It's going to embody the love and grace of Jesus in our own lives and to the world around us. If we really believe that Jesus has come to forgive all people, then we're going to start to embody that forgiveness all around us. If we really believe that Jesus cared for the poor and the oppressed, then we're going to embody that care. That's why this church meets in this place, friends. If we really believe that Jesus called us to love all people, even our enemies, then we are going to cease to have enemies and love all people if we really believe it. If we really believe Jesus' words that generosity is where life is found and that giving ourselves away is where life is found, then we're going to stop hoarding. We're going to stop being scarce with our resources. We're going to give ourselves away because that is the way of Jesus. Our mission at this church is to invite people into a transformative relationship with Jesus because we believe that when we say we believe, it actually transforms things. It actually should lead to a change in myself and a change in the world around me. It's going to distinguish this community from the world. And I also know that oftentimes the church isn't distinguished from the rest of the world. I know that sometimes the church has failed to be the church, has failed to believe. We fail to believe when we emphasize the consumerism and greed of our culture, when we really hype up our product creation, when we really emphasize the importance of producing things for others to come and clap and applaud for, rather than humbly serving Jesus. We cease to believe when we emphasize pursuits of political and social power for our own gain. That's not the way of Jesus. He took the lowest possible social position to serve others. We cease to believe when we only have impressive looking and sounding people at the front of our rooms because that's not who Jesus was. Jesus made himself the lowest and went to the lowest in our society, not the impressive people, the broken people. That's why there's no perfect people allowed here. Because if we're going to believe this, then it means we're going to embody it. To say, I believe, is to be distinguished. And if the creed, our reciting of this and our proclamation of these words, if it doesn't lead us to be distinguished, then we're lying when we say, I believe. But if we actually live this out, if we actually allow Jesus to transform our lives, then this statement it's radical. It can change every part of our lives. It can change the lives of the people beyond these walls. That's what it means when we say, I believe. It points, it clarifies, and it distinguishes. 
I want to share with you a story about a guy named Charles Blondin. Anybody heard of Charles Blondin? Oh, nice. Yeah, this is a fun story. Charles Blondin was a circus acrobat in the late 19th century. He's one of the most renowned in history because he was especially effective at tightrope walking. That was his specialty. In fact, the word Blondin, his last name, has become synonymous with a good tightrope walker. And he traveled all over the world to do this. One year, he decided, I'm going to tightrope across Niagara Falls. It's going to be this amazing show. We're going to invite all sorts of people out. So he travels to the US. He has this crowd of people ready to watch him. He's standing in front of the crowd before he tightropes. And he asks the crowd a couple questions. He says, do you guys believe that I can walk across a tightrope over Niagara Falls? And the crowd is into it. They're like, yeah, you can do it. Woo! He says, OK, cool. Do you believe that I can tightrope across Niagara Falls with a wheelbarrow on the tightrope in front of me? And the crowd's like, yeah, yeah. They're like more amped up. It's going to be crazy. He says, OK. So who's going to get in the wheelbarrow? quiet. To believe means to put everything on the line for that belief, friends. To believe is to say, this is the orienting factor of everything I do, and I'm willing to be in a wheelbarrow on a tightrope with Jesus because I trust that he can get me where we need to go. This statement is an opportunity for every one of us in this church to get into the wheelbarrow, to follow Jesus, to allow him to shape our lives, to trust that this creed points to him, to trust that it clarifies who God is and what God is doing, to trust that it distinguishes us as people. So over the next 11 weeks, friends, are you going to get in the wheelbarrow? Whatever that looks like for you, wherever you are in your journey, are you going to get in the wheelbarrow with Jesus? Because when we say, I believe, that's what we're talking about. Let's see what this might change in you and in me. Let's pray.